0: Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christoginian Saturdays. Today is Saturday, March 26th, 2016. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight we're going to do something a little different, but it's really not different at all. Over these last several months, we have spent a lot of time discussing the early years of the Reformation relative to the life of Martin Luther, discussing things such as the rise of humanism in Germany and the Reuchlin affair as well as the fact that the support of humanists was crucial to the success of Luther's cause in the in the years following the Reuchlin affair we have frequently stated that the we wanted to better quantify the role of the Jews who were indeed operating behind the scenes of these events there were of course converso Jews who were operating out in the open and they could do so because they were supposed converts presenting Martin Luther's on the Jews in their lives we discussed many of the converso Jews whose writings Luther had studied and whose arguments he had adopted and employed against religious Jews so Martin Luther himself had gotten much of his theological understanding from the Jews. A horrible thing. But for even a more pertinent example, we had also pointed out how, for instance, Johannes Peppercorn, Pfeffercorn, one of the leading voices against Johannes Reuschland, was himself a Converso Jew, who had taken it upon himself to assume the role of spokesman for those who were opposed to Reuchlin, stepping out in front of the more traditionally conservative Dominican monks. We hope to have made it apparent that the Dominican monks had a dispute with Reuchlin with or without Pfefferkorn, but the Converso Jew nevertheless became the leading voice and agitator for action against Reuchlin and the Jews, the religious Jews. And the illustration of this Jewish proclivity for undermining and dividing Christendom through agitation is one of the primary motives behind the writing of the book, The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit and Its Impact on World History by E. Michael Jones. In his book, Jones has already researched and elucidated many aspects of the Jewish role in these significant events of Christian history. Therefore, we are persuaded that a presentation of some of Jones' work will greatly augment what we have been presenting in our series on Martin Luther and the Reformation. But we are also persuaded that this will serve as a necessary prerequisite to our future presentations of the Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion, which we had already hoped to resume, and which we plan to resume after we present a couple of the pertinent chapters from Jones's book. We believe that these presentations will therefore enhance our understanding not only of the Reformation, when we resume with our discussion of that, but also of the mentality and objectives of the authors of the protocols themselves, as we have already demonstrated that the protocols are certainly not mere forgeries. So we have titled this program, The Jews in Europe, The Conversal Problem and the Inquisition, and this is only part one of what will probably be a two-part series. And after this, we will present Jones's view of the Reuschland affair from the same book, a perspective which is somewhat different than the one which we have already seen. We had wanted to go back even further than the Inquisition and present Jones's chapter covering the Hussite Wars and the earlier disaffection of Christians with the Roman Church. We chose not to, although we hope to discuss Jan Hus and other schisms with the medieval church at some point in the future. For now, we are persuaded that an understanding of Jewish behavior during the Inquisition and up to the time of Luther is sufficient for our present purposes. If we kept having to go back in time in order to complete our understanding we would have to start all over again from Genesis chapter 3 we have already covered much of that in our other work here at Christagenia. However, it must be noted in advance that E. Michael Jones's views in many ways are contrary to those of identity Christians. First, his attitude towards Christianity is that of a traditional Roman Catholic and he evidently believes that any opposition to the Roman Catholic Church is Jewish in nature. This is because he wrongly associates the Old Testament with the Jews and also wrongly associates any fundamental interpretation of the New Testament with the Jews. Jones goes so far in his association of the Old Testament with Jews that he quotes the Jew, Heinrich Gratz, the Jewish historian of the 18th century, where he said that whenever a party in Christendom opposes itself to the ruling church, it assumes a tinge of the Old Testament, not to say Jewish spirit and of course nothing could be further from the truth unless we understand that modern Jews are actually Canaanites and the Old Testament instructs us that it was the Canaanites who agitated the children of Israel in their rebellion against God but that is a level of historical abstraction to which Jones remains blind in spite of his studies And, of course, Heinrich Gretz would never make such an admission either. Discussing this also helps to elucidate another fault in Jones' work, that he frequently cites Jewish historians. Sometimes this cannot be helped, as there are no other available resources for some information. To Jones' credit, he cites non-Jewish historians as well. Also, to Jones' credit, he is often critical of the Jewish historians that he cites. Where Jewish historians must be taken into consideration, they must be examined very critically. But concerning the Bible, Jewish historians must be dismissed entirely, and Jones fails in that regard. Jesus Christ himself, as well as the Apostle Paul of Tarsus, had both consistently demonstrated that Jews have no business interpreting or even understanding the Scriptures. Both testaments of the Bible are entirely Christian books, except for the spurious Book of Esther, which is the only Jewish story in the entire book, and it needs to be removed. Jones absolutely fails to realize that the people we now identify as Jews were infiltrators and corruptors of Judea 200 years before Christ and that they had subverted Judea just as they have more recently subverted Europe, America and now the rest of the world. But before they were called Judeans, they were called Edomites And before that, they were known as Canaanites and Kenites. The New Testament itself attests that none of them are truly who they claim to be. So Jewish subversion shall continue until men face and accept the truth concerning Jewish identity and take the entire Bible back from the clutches of the Jew. For our purposes here, we shall tolerate and sometimes elucidate Jones's faults while we learn from the good things which he has diligently researched. From the Jewish revolutionary spirit and its impact on world history by E. Michael Jones this is chapter 6 the Converso problem where he is discussing the results of the conversions of the Jews in Spain from as early as the 14th century. Revenue to the crown the Spanish crown, the crown of Castile actually, revenue to the crown dropped catastrophically as a consequence of the conversion of the Sephardic Jews. The Jews who submitted to baptism were no longer subject to the head tax They were also, as Christians, qualified for governmental office. Race was not an issue. The Jew, who became a Christian, was eligible to any position in church or state, or to any matrimonial alliance for which his abilities fitted him. The converted Jews flourished, leading the nation in its return to, quote-unquote, normalcy which of course wasn't really normal at all when the king of Aragon admitted officially that many conversions were forced and therefore unacceptable and allowed Jews to return to Judaism if they wished the resulting laxity prosperity lack of catechesis and general lethargy combined to call commitment to the faith into question and I'm sorry Jones is switching back and forth between Castile and Aragon in his descriptions. Because the Jews way of life often didn't change much after conversion, the lines between Christians and Jews blurred in doctrinally and socially dangerous ways. The Infante Don Alfonso summarized the situation when criticizing Conversions which resulted from overt pressure and coercion. And he says, Forced conversions are not deeds pleasing in the sight of God for he desires voluntary and not compulsory sacrifices moreover experience has shown that contrary to expectations the recent converts to the holy catholic faith still continue most meticulously and reverently even in an exaggerated form in their perversities and faith in the false religion in which they believed before the illumination of the Holy Ghost came upon them and that's the fault of the Catholic viewpoint that the Holy Ghost comes upon you when you profess to be a Christian and are baptized that hasn't happened in 1900 years I can testify he continues that I have observed this in my own private concerns and at my court so we see that the Jews in Spain were being forced to convert to Christianity. But on the other hand, there were great financial, social, and political incentives for them to convert. The reference to the Infante Don Don Alfonso here is apparently a reference to Alfonso the Prince of Asturias, who died in 1468. He was a leading figure of the rebellion of nobles and merchants against his own half-brother Henry IV, the King of Castile, dubbed Henry the Impudent. He was the son of John II of Castile, by his second wife Isabella of Portugal. Our author will explain later why the forced conversions were undertaken. He continues, the very openness of Spanish society, though favorable in the short run, was ultimately detrimental to the status of the converted Jews. Diego de Valera, a converso, wrote, there was great enmity and rivalry on the Cordoba city council because, and he quotes, the new Christians a term which is frequently used here for Converso Jews. They are called New Christians in the Spanish literature. The New Christians were very rich and kept buying public offices, which they made use of so arrogantly that the old Christians, who are the true Christian Spaniards, would not put up with it, which also reflects the state of modern politics. Except now the Jews don't have to undergo the pretext of conversion." He continues by saying, or Jones continues by saying, the conversos often worked at the royal courts because their religion was no longer an impediment to putting their abilities to use as civil servants. In 1415 John II of Castile informed his converso-treasurer. Whereas I have been informed that members of your family were, when Jews, considered to be noble, it is right that you should be held in even more honor, now that you are Christians. Therefore, it is my decision that you be treated as nobles. The status of the Jews, who converted in the wake of the riots of 1391, and the campaigns of Vincent Ferrer in the early 15th century has been disputed ever since. Cantor, one of the Jewish historians often quoted by Jones, Cantor says not only were the great majority of Jewish converts sincere but from among learned and aristocratic new Christian, new Christian Jewish converts families came some of the greatest names in early 16th century Spanish ecclesiastical and cultural history, and our author is going to refute Cantor to a great degree as we proceed this evening. Cantor names among these so-called greatest names in early 16th century Spanish history. Juan Luis Vives, the Erasmian Humanist. Bartolome de las Casas, the apostle to the native americans and nemesis of the reckless conquistadors. St. Teresa of Avila, reformer of the Carmelite order, the first female doctor of the church, and the teacher of St. John of the Cross, as well as some of the leading bishops of the time, such as Hernando de Talavero the first bishop of Granada, formerly Queen Elizabeth's, I'm sorry, Queen Isabella's confessor. And here we see that the Jews, as soon as they were converted to Christianity in Spain, had been exalted above the true Christians and had immediately taken the vanguard in the causes of humanism, universalism, and feminism. The first paragraph at Wikipedia in the article about Juan Luis Vives is quite interesting. He was a Valencian scholar and humanist who spent most of his adult life in the southern Netherlands. His beliefs on a soul, insight into early medical practice, and perspective on emotions, memory, and learning earned him the title of the father of modern psychology. Vives was the first to shed light on some key ideas that established how we perceive psychology today. We could only imagine that Vives shed a whole lot of darkness. Ignorant of history, Christians simply do not understand how far we have fallen following the Jews. Our society has long been filled with the poison of Jewish thought. Jones quoting Cantor goes on to say it is not an exaggeration to see the role of scions of converted Jewish families as central to the Spanish Renaissance of the early 16th century as were Jews in the modernist cultural revolution of the early 20th century in both cases complete access to general culture induced an explosion of intellectual creativity. And I have to bury my tongue far into my cheek to repeat this. The Jewish new Christians had their children in the early 16th century embraced Christian thought and learning with the same kind of creative enthusiasm as assimilated Jews contributed to modernism in literature and theory between 1900 and 1940 and we could have easily done without them all. Of course, Christians should see all of this as the corruption of a once beautiful society, rather than as progressive advancement. But some Jews are more candid than others. Next, our historian, our author, quotes Cecil Roth, another Jewish historian, and he says that Roth says the opposite. Although, within a generation or two, the Moranos became assimilated enough, Rothfield's appearances were deceiving, although their worldly success was phenomenal, and they almost controlled the economic life of the country and made fabulous fortunes as bankers and merchants and thronged the liberal professions, even attaining high rank in the church. The vast majority of the conversos remained faithful at the heart to the religion of their fathers. Their Christianity was merely a mask. They were Christians in nothing and Jews in everything but name. Now with this, our author becomes incredulous, rejecting the notion that the most pious-seeming Jews could have actually been faking it. We would disagree. Here Jones uses Solomon Halevi as his example. This Jew, Halevi, was also known as Paul of Burgos, a rabbi and a Talmudic scholar, and a very wealthy and influential Jew. He was also a tax farmer, the only type of farming to which the Jews are inclined. After his conversion, he quickly became the Archbishop of Burgos. So he went from being the prominent rabbi of Burgos to the Archbishop of Burgos. And he was followed in that position by his son, martin luther frequently quoted from his corrupt writings so it is in reference to him that jones asks was the in his incredulous response to cecil roth Was the Christianity of the Catholic bishop Solomon HaLevy merely a mask? That seems unlikely. The evidence for the sincerity of Jewish conversions comes largely from the biographies of eminent conversos. So Jones already disproves himself. He just disproved himself. He doesn't even know it. The evidence for insincerity comes largely from the documents of the Inquisition. He disproved himself in reference to Solomon HaLevi's conversion and its authenticity. The evidence for insincerity comes largely from the documents of the Inquisition. Benzion Netanyahu resolves the dilemma by disqualifying all Inquisition documents as unreliable. And so, disproving himself, Jones is using the arguments of another Jew. Most of the conversos, Netanyahu tells us, were conscious assimilationists who wished to merge with the Christian society educate their children as fully-fledged Christians, and remove themselves from anything regarded as Jewish, and especially in the field of religion. Later on in this chapter, Jones and the research that he provides fully convict Netanyahu of lying. Netanyahu is absolutely lying, and we will see that shortly. The number of Christianized Moranos was rising from generation to generation while the number of clandestine Jews among them was rapidly dwindling to the vanishing point. In 1481, when the Inquisition was established, the Judaizers formed a small minority in both relative and absolute numbers. Surely there was no need to eliminate by force a phenomenon that was disappearing by itself. And in light of this subsequent history, we do not believe a word of what Netanyahu has told us. But we will soon soon see that our author also raises this issue and treats it well. He says, Netanyahu claims scholars felt the conversos were secret Jews only because of the reliance of most scholars on the documents of the Inquisition. To get an accurate picture of mid-15th century Spain, evidence must be obtained from sources that were absolutely free of the Inquisition's influence. And here he's quoting Netanyahu again. Evidence needs to be gleaned from documents that antedated the Inquisition. Those documents, Netanyahu says, show virtually all Jewish authorities in Spain and elsewhere regarded the mass of the Moranos as renegades, that is, as apostates or Gentiles. By any of these definitions, these were Christians, and in no way Judaizers or crypto-Jews. Had the Moranos been secret Jews, the Jewish scholars and leaders who authored our sources would have been first to confirm this fact. The evidence of the Jewish sources, therefore, flatly contradict the inquisitional charges. Its lesson was that the new Christians, the conversos, were generally what their name suggested. Netanyahu thus begins to solve the problem of whether the converts were sincere, but raises another, even more intractable problem. Intractable problem. A hard to handle problem. If the Jews were sincere why did the turmoil of the conversions the turmoil the conversions were supposed to solve continue if the Jews were sincere why did the turmoil the conversions were supposed to solve continue if the conversions were sincere why didn't peace return to Spain. And these are of course valid questions on the part of Jones which prove Netanyahu is wrong and that the conversions were not sincere. Netanyahu's answer to that question is anti-semitism. But as of 1391, anti-semitism, and he's talking about racial anti-semitism, anti-semitism did not exist. Animus against Jews was based purely on religious grounds. And that is true. The Spaniards, after over 700 years of Islamic multiculturalism, could not tell apart the wheat from the tares. But the Catholic Jones also seems oblivious to the role of race in Christianity. Agreeing with this, he is about to cite Vincent Ferrer who also felt the same way and he says baptism as Saint Vincent Ferrer pointed out destroyed the Jew there was no Jew left after conversion according to principles that the popes reiterated repeatedly converts were to be accepted without calumny Now, it is a false notion of universalism that water baptism miraculously changes the nature of the individual. The falsehood dates back to the practice of of the Pharisees of Judea, by which they justified their proselytes. As the English scholar John Lightfoot had pointed out in his commentary on the New Testament from the Talmud and Hebraica that the Pharisees actually believed when they baptized the proselyte that the nature of that baptism had changed that person into an Israelite. The Catholic Church followed in the same idea that baptism changes the nature of the individual being baptized and there is no foundation for that in Scripture. According to Netanyahu, the bishops were not interested in true conversion or religious probity. What they wanted was to have the Jews degraded and repressed. Netanyahu claims the Spanish bishops did not want to have all of Spain's Jews converted, and fused with the Spaniards. But this is precisely what happened in case after prominent case in other words Netanyahu is lying to run cover for the bad behavior of the Jews and Jones recognizes that here. He goes on to say The conversion of Solomon HaLevi, Paul of Burgos, is one example of a Jewish convert who is accepted unequivocally by both the church and state. There is no evidence of any reluctance of the Spanish hierarchy to accept him as a fellow bishop in good standing. And down through the time of Martin Luther, churchmen loved Solomon HaLevi and they considered him a great scholar. Jones is absolutely correct about this and refuting Netanyahu, who's a Jewish liar. Jones goes on to say, Torquemada, the Grand Inquisitor, came from a Converso family. Ignoring these and other salient facts, Netanyahu claims the bishops evaded a dilemma when they formally recognized the forced converts as Christians, but in practice treated them all as Jews on the grounds that their conversion was forced. And Jones says. There is no evidence to support this contention and much to contradict it. Netanyahu notes some bishops attempted to thwart the mass conversions, but refuses to accept the theological justification for their actions. Theological considerations distinguish the bishops from the politicians in Spain. The later, always more willing to use forced conversion as the simplest solution to intractable conflicts. Forced conversion was not new to Spain, nor were its sequels. In 633, the 4th Council of Toledo decreed very many of the Jews who, some time ago, were promoted to the Christian faith are now not only known to blaspheme Christ and perform Jewish rites, they are also presumed to practice the abominable circumcisions. After admitting, the church often curbed the king's zeal and the bishops, at least to some extent, championed freedom of conscience, Netanyahu is forced to question their motives. The more Netanyahu develops his thesis, the more he gets caught in the hermeneutic of his own suspicions. The bishops, he says, hid their real motives when they attributed the slowness of their action to their attempts to convert the Jews by preaching. How does he know this? In opposing forced conversion, the Spanish bishops were only reiterating the constant teaching of the church. No hidden motives were necessary to justify their position. Netanyahu gives no evidence for his assessment of their motives. Instead, he makes apodictic statements. No one knew better than the Spanish bishops that they could not count on mere preaching and persuasion to convert Spain's Jews to Christianity. Hence their policy on the issue of conversion was rooted in different considerations. Netanyahu thus contradicts his original premise that the conversions were sincere. The Crusade of St. Vincent Ferrer shows that preaching and persuasion led to the conversion of many Jews. Now Jones upholds the exceptions as the ideal and the work of Vincent Ferrer as the ideal, the Jews nevertheless had many advantages to benefit from their voluntary conversion. They could not hold public office, but if they con- claim to convert to Christianity and be baptized they could hold public office. They could not intermarry Spanish women, but if they converted they could have all the pretty blondes they wanted. They could not do many other things that they would be afforded the ability to do as Christians while as Jews as we will find out they were not expected to live as Christians because they still traded in usury they still acted as tax farmers and all the other things that Christians were forbidden, they were still allowed to do because they were Jews. They were not held responsible to live as Christians while they got the benefit of living as Christians. So, they were very well off if they converted to Christianity. And they were exalted as converted Jews. So, I wouldn't hold the work of Vincent Ferrer to prove that there could be such a thing as good Jews. It certainly does not. The other incentives are much stronger in daily life than anything that a Jew could get from the Gospel. And we will see that that is true. So Jones continues, The same is true of the disputation of Tortosa, which even Jewish sources admit. Netanyahu, as a result, is in a bind. If the conversions were insincere, then the documents of the Inquisition are worth examining. If the conversions were sincere, then they were not brought about by force, but by preaching and persuasion. Netanyahu seems unaware of the contradiction at the heart of his book, a contradiction required by the unquestioned tenet of mainstream Jewish historiography, namely that anti-Semitism is never a function of Jewish behavior. And here criticizing Netanyahu, Jones approaches the truth, because anti-Semitism is absolutely rooted in Jewish behavior, and in nothing else. Conspicuous by its absence from Netanyahu's book is any consideration of rabbinic theology on the issue of conversion under duress. The rabbis played into the hands of racists when they collaborated with unscrupulous Spanish politicians to allow false conversion. The early church was split over whether Christians who renounced the faith during the Roman persecutions should be readmitted to the church. The less rigid debated with which penances should apply, but the church never condoned renunciation of the faith. Talmudic Judaism, however, accommodated lying, if not in all cases of apostasy, based on a distinction that would have consequences as serious as those that followed from the forced conversions. Actually, Talmudic prayers, such as the Nidre show that Judaism endorses the act of lying to non-Jews, and even relieves Jews who lie to one another. As Christ said in Jan- John chapter 8, that for the Jew, the act of lying is indeed a natural trait. Jones continues, In the 15th century, the rabbis in North Africa distinguished between anusim, or unwilling converts, and meshumadim, those who were converted voluntarily. The only Jew ostracized by the synagogue was the sincere convert, the liar and dissembler were tolerated tacitly in violation of the teaching of Moses and the scriptural principle articulated in the book of Maccabees. I have not determined exactly what principle in Maccabees is referred to here. As a result, the rabbis and unscrupulous anti-Semitic Christian politicians could continue to prosper Collaborated in creating an atmosphere where subversion flourished. Jews who prospered by converting could continue to prosper as Christians while, and this is important, while retaining the same opportunistic attitude towards Christianity (coughs) that had prevented them from dying for Judaism, meaning to refuse conversion in the times of forced conversion. The Christians, who had been moved to violence against Jews, now harbored the same animus clouded by religious ambiguity against the conversos, whom they called Moranos, a derogatory term which some claim means swine. Race replaced religion as the source of the animosity, but now there was no instant theological cure, i.e. baptism for being of the wrong race. There was in fact no cure other than extermination or expulsion. As we shall see, race replaced religion as the source of animosity because, as Jones is explaining, the Jews continued to act in the same manner as supposed Christians than they had previously acted as Jews, and even worse, now they had license to have or to purchase Christian wives and to purchase public offices previously restricted to them, giving them authority over Christians, so the Jews being granted these liberties in Christian society became even worse than they had then in the first place. And this is the antidote to the warnings of Christ. Converting the children of hell, they become twice the children of hell. Force Conversion Strengthened the suspicions it was supposed to allay, and turned a difficult issue into an impossible one and the rabbis were instrumental in strengthening the suspicions of the racially-minded. Jews were regarded as a fifth column within the state, and conversos were regarded, because of the very conversion it was forced on them, as an even more dangerous fifth column within the church. Fray Vicente de Rocamora, the confessor of Empress Maria, now that's a pretty influential post, sister of Philip II, threw off the mask of Catholicism and joined the Hebrew community at at Amsterdam as Isaac of Rocamora. In the 17th century, the Jewish community at Amsterdam consisted almost exclusively of conversos who had thrown off the Catholic faith after escaping from Spain and Portugal. It was made up, in other words, of apostate Catholics who had lied about their faith. Now Jones makes a serious error by considering that Jews could possibly be Catholics in the context that Catholics are Christians. And I'm going to quote from something that a friend posted at the Christogynia Forum today. Here is a quote from Hermann Alwart, a member of the German Reichstag circa 1895. I am of the opinion that the baptism of Jews is of no use because the Jews cannot lay aside their racial characteristics. The Jew cannot change his religion. Some of them may do so for business and commercial reasons, but these are worse than those who do not change. So we see that German so-called anti-Semitism certainly did not begin with Adolf Hitler. Herman Awart made every determination that anyone should make any Christian should make reading Jones's account of the reasons for the Inquisition which we are reading here continuing with Jones The cynical Jews who converted insincerely exploited the system of forced conversion to retain power and wealth. Consequently, those whose conversions were sincere suffered under the growing anti-Semitism. Later, Jewish apologists seem unaware of the complexity of the situation and the implications that flow from it, and of course we would not expect any such conversions to actually be sincere, but Jones is quite altruistic, probably because he does not at all understand the gravity of the issue of race, being the Catholic that he is. He continues by saying, quoting the Jewish historian Cecil Roth, Roth's description of the conversos as Christians in nothing and Jews in everything but name probably described some but not all Jews who converted after the uprising of 1391. He fails to see that justifying false conversion. Conversion lends credence to the anti-Semites. First, it ignores the many sincere conversions. Roth and the Spanish anti-Semites dismiss the possibility of sincere conversion out of hand. Second, Roth's justification of duplicity condones subversion and makes it a Jewish characteristic and we would say from history and the New Testament We know that subversion is indeed a Jewish characteristic. As the apostles described, false brethren who crept in unawares to subvert the assemblies of Christians. In this, Roth is following weighty rabbinic opinions which accepted outward conversion if coupled with an inward denial. The rabbinic acceptance of duplicity would have far-reaching consequences for European Jewry. In the statements concerning history, Jones is doing well, but in his opinions, he is fighting himself all the way. He goes on to say, the regimen of false conversions in Spain made a bad situation worse. The cynical Jewish converts continued to exploit the situation under the protection of the church, while the sincere which we still doubt the existence of, but Jones insists, while the sincere Jewish converts lived under constant and intolerable suspicion. By the 1440s it was clear that forced conversions had not solved Spain's Jewish problem. According to the acts of the financial administration of Castile, Jews controlled about two-thirds of the indirect taxes and customs within the country, on the frontier and at the ports. And we wonder how Jews get rich. Occasionally, in conjunction with tax farming, Jews also engaged in purveying grain, arms, and clothing for the army that was then fighting with the Moslems. A whole network of Jewish tax farmers and collectors was spread over the entire kingdom. The chief was a Jewish tax farmer general who also acted as the king's treasurer. And of course, George Washington would refer to the same Jewish purveyors of arms and war supplies as a wicked black gentry. The real beginnings of troubles for Christendom was when the kings decided that having Jews around for tax farming and other financial purposes was expedient to their interests. Jones continues, The old animosities returned more virulently. A Jewish tax collector was killed. On Jewish festivals, conversos visited their Jewish friends at the synagogue and in the sukkah. The lingua franca of both groups became a rationalist of heroism, according to which it was common practice for both converso and Jewish intellectuals to compare the laws of the Torah to natural morality and natural law, and assert that Aristotle's ethics was sufficient, was a sufficient guide Christian conduct. The wholesale conversion, says Walsh, referring to the Catholic American historian William Thomas Walsh, the wholesale conversions seem to have given to this opportunist type of Jew a chance to eat his cake and have it too. He could enjoy all the advantages of going to Mass on Sunday, and going to the synagogue on Saturday. His children were barred from no profitable and honorable occupations. They could marry, thanks to his money, into noble, impoverished families, and succeed to the proudest titles in Castile. They could become priests, even bishops, and there was Andres Gomaltz, parish priest of San Martin de Talavera, who, according to his own profession, Celebrated Mass from 1472 to 1486 without believing in it. Paul of Burgos, or as Jones refers to him by his Jewish name, Solomon HaLevi, claimed to have his inspiration from Thomas Aquinas. But Thomas Aquinas despised the Jews who made money from tax farming and usury, things which Burgos, as Luther called him, was heavily engaged in, and became quite wealthy from. So Solomon HaLevi was a hypocritical Jew, using Christianity as a front, as Jones unwittingly describes here likewise we have just seen the record of supposedly converted Jews Jews who were expected to be Christians and rather than using scripture as their moral guideline resort to claims that Aristotle's ethics were good enough for Christian morality this is humanism and it has Judaism at its root converso Jews were flourishing Because they were still not held accountable to live as Christians. While they were being given all the benefits of being Christians. It was like letting wolves into the sheepfold and expecting them to act like sheep. Without first removing their fangs. Jones continues. Bear, another Jewish historian, which Jones admits here. Bear writing from the Jewish perspective, concurs. The fervor of conversion from 1391 to 1414 was followed by reaction, during which the conversos returned ad vomitum judaisme," Jones seems to mean that they returned to the vomit of Judaism, alluding to the words of the Apostle Peter. There sees a conscious return to Jewish roots rather than cultural inertia or opportunism. Not only did the actual converts, Anusim, try with all their might to live as Jews, but even the children and the grandchildren of apostates who had forsaken Judaism of their own free will and choice are now inclined to retrace their steps. The conversos secretly visited their Jewish brethren in order to join them in celebrating Jewish festivals. Bear says the conversos had Jewish prayer books and engaged their own Hebrew teachers and ritual slaughters. The conversos continued to earn the odium of the Christian majority because many lent money at interest and tax farmed. The efficacy of baptism and therefore the sacramental system of the Church was called into question, something that led inexorably to racism, and we would say that the sacramental system was never Christian in the first place, or fear was suppressed and then transformed into hatred of the Jews, who were seen as trifling mendaciously with the most sacred commitments and therefore incapable of being trusted. The suspicions fell most heavily on the cultured conversos of the upper class, who benefited most from the conversion by gaining access to offices previously off limits to Jews. The average Christian believed he was ruled by a class of philosophical intellectuals who were nihilists, they didn't believe in anything, and opportunists with no religious beliefs, no different than today's atheistic Jews, who insist upon being conferred with all the benefits of being the so-called chosen while denying God himself bare sights the saying, To be born and die, all the rest is a snare and a delusion, as epitomizing the beliefs of this class of convert. And this attitude is the attitude which gave rise to humanism within the Church. Because of the number of converted Jews prominent in Spain, it was reputedly more secular than Renaissance Italy. And secular society is the natural result of a Jewish-dominated society, because the Jews truly have no God. Lyric poetry from the period reveals, as it did in the 12th and 13th centuries, a type of Jewish courtier who had become either a converso or an open apostate. The Italians felt the Jews ruled Spain, while secretly perverting the faith by their covert adherence to Judaism. And it was not long before devout Catholics, such as Prince Carpi, were fighting with Italian humanists within the Church in Italy. Not long at all. During the posthumous trial of Pedro de la Cavalleria, killed in 1461, in an uprising in Catalonia against John II of Aragon, a Jewish weaver testified that de la Cavalleria lived near his home in a small village in Aragon to escape the plague. While there, de la Cavalleria often visited the weaver and took part in the Sabbath meal, eating Hammond and other foods. Now Hammond was a Jewish stew prepared in advance, for the Sabbath, I could make a joke. I don't know if it had if I don't know if Hammond had Ham in it, and I couldn't help but say that when the tailor noticed how well he versed how well versed de la Cav- Cavalleria was in Hebrew prayers, he asked him why being so learned in the Torah. He had converted to Christianity. De la Cavalleria replied, Silence fool! Could I, as a Jew, ever have risen higher than a rabbinical post? But now, see, I am one of the chief counselors of the city, for the sake of the little man who was hanged, a reference to Christ. I am accorded every honor, and I issue orders and decrees to the whole city of Saragossa. Who hinders me, if I choose, from fasting on Yom Kippur and keeping your festivals and all the rest? When I was a Jew, I dare not as walk as far as this, meaning beyond the limits of the Sabbath day's walk imposed by the rabbis. But now I do as I please." Baer concludes, testimony as detailed can hardly be doubted. Conversos could have the best of both worlds. They could advance in careers formerly barred to them, and they could continue to lend money and tax farm without the heavy burden of the Jewish law or the equally heavy burden of the taxation levied on the Jews. They had the freedom of the Gospels from Jewish law and they had the freedom of the Jews from Christian responsibility. No one was able to enforce either set of rules on them. And their behavior, we must add, always proves that their conversions are never sincere. But, as Jones is about to state, the records show that the Spaniards could not fairly be charged with racism or with racist anti-Semitism. And Jones says, this triumph was short-lived. Their success shows that there had been no antagonism of race, but only of religion. That speedily changed as apostate Jews, in many cases, they lavished hate and contempt on those who remained Jews. It proved impossible to stimulate popular abhorrence of the Jew without also stimulating the envy and jealousy excited by the ostensation and arrogance of the new Christians, meaning the conversal Jews, morals, deteriorated at the court and the peasants groaned under their predations. This situation, (coughs) Walsh says, could not go on indefinitely without an explosion and unfortunately there were many explosions of the worst possible sort. The mob, seeing the government of Henry the Impotent, as Henry IV was called, unwilling to do anything to curb the conversos, and virtually handing over to them the conduct of both state and church, took matters into their own hands. In one city after another, just before Queen Isabel came to the throne, the conversos were put to the sword and their houses burned. That morals deteriorated at the court is another sign of Jewish supremacism as morals deteriorate wherever Jews preponderate. Recent history is more than sufficient proof of the accusation. They create Sodom and Gomorrah wherever they go. Jones continues after I get a drink. The explosion occurred in Toledo in 1449, when Alvaro de Luna demanded the city pay for the defense of the frontiers. When the city refused, Alvaro ordered his tax farmers, most of whom were conversos, to collect. The population rose in rebellion and burned the house of a prominent converso tax farmer to the ground. The mob then turned on the houses of Toledo's other conversos and burned them to the ground, too. It was the first racially based pogrom in the history of Christendom. It marked the entry of racism into European history, the hatred which of old had been merely a matter of religion had become a matter of race. The one could be conjured away by baptism. The other was indelible, and the change was of the most serious import, exercising for centuries its sinister influence on the fate of the peninsula. And this is certainly not true, as racial prejudices were quite normal among the ancient Greeks and Romans. Jones, however, seems to be ignorant of the broader history of our race and the issue of race which is often raised in the New Testament as well as the Old. However, under the Universal Roman Catholic Church, historically, racism was discouraged, and especially among perceived Catholics, racism was often proscribed. For most of European history, the absence of racism was immaterial, as the cultures of the various nations were quite homogeneous. while in the presence of the Jew, religion was the necessary element which set him apart, so race was simply not a factor. So the Catholic Church, because its doctrines were void of racism, was unprepared to the confront the Jew when his conversion proved that his wicked traits remained in spite of his change in religion, and therefore those wicked traits must be attributed to the matter of his race. When the Jew converted but failed to change, the mask of the religion fell off and his true nature was revealed. But the church still didn't get it. Jones continues, State and church responded promptly. The old Christians held the conversos, responsible for the uprising. The old Christians meaning the original Spanish Christians. Pedro Sarmiento had conversos tortured. They confessed they had been living as Jews. He sentenced them to burn at the stake and issued an edict accusing them of perfidy. The conversos, the edict claimed had been behind Don Alvaro's ruinous levy, which was tantamount to an act of war. The conversos further had plundered the royal treasury by stratagems and cunning, which had impoverished the ancient nobility, depriving them of their fortunes, rights, and privileges. Sarmiento then proclaimed all conversos of Jewish descent to be unfit for any public office whose occupants exercise authority over old Christians in the city and the district. Now the church in Rome responded by asserting its refusal to acknowledge any difference in racial characteristics which prevented Jews from being true Christians. If it was not killed by treachery, it died of altruism. On September twenty-fourth, 1449, Pope Nicholas V issued a bull declaring that the faithful were one and that racial distinctions had no standing in the Catholic Church. He ordered the king to enforce the laws of Alfonso X to this effect. Converts to the Catholic faith were to be accepted without calumny. Alonso de Oropesa, another converso Jew, General of the Geronomites, wrote "Luminum," I'm sorry, lumen ad revelationum Gentium," supporting the Pope's pronouncement that the church was one. He laid out a program of reform to deal with the converso issue, but the feuding between old meaning real, and new, meaning Jew, old and new Christians continued unabated. Now this Alfonso X that the Pope refers to was the King of Castile and Leon from 1252 to 1284. He is said by Wikipedia, because that's as far as I had to go to find what I needed, he is said to have fostered the development of a cosmopolitan cosmopolitan court that encouraged learning. Jews, Muslims, and Christians had prominent roles in his court. So we see how early ecumenism had taken hold in Spain. This Alonso de Oropesa was a Jewish converso and a Hieronymite monk. Here Jones refers to Hieronymites as Geronimites from the Spanish version of the name. The Hieronymites were the Catholic Order of St. Jerome. According to the Spanish Wikipedia site, an examination of his Lumen ad Revelationum Gentium, commissioned by Henry IV was a defense of the unity of the old and new Christians by the figure of the mystical body of Christ. So the body of Christ has a devil joined to it, right? It is said to be the most important defense of the conversos of the fifteenth century. Basically we can see that Lumen ad Revelationum Gentium, a name which means a light for the revelation of the nations, was a manual commanding true Christians to tolerate insincere Jewish infiltrators. That's exactly what it was. Jones continues, The grievances of the old Christians can be gleaned from a satire written around his time a parody of a royal document it purports to confer privileges on a knight of old christian descent to henceforth live like a morano a converso he could now advise the country's rulers and by his wicked counsel to lead them into the paths of licentiousness, lust, and oppression of their poor subjects, and to derive from all this the utmost possible advantages for himself. He was entitled to charge interest on loans, to keep the Jewish laws, to intermarry with members of the Jewish race to hold their opinions, and to believe not in the Catholic faith, but solely in birth and death. In other words, becoming a Jew or reflecting of the Jews. They never practiced Christianity during their lifetime. They were only Catholic in birth, meaning at baptism, and in death, meaning at absolution. He was also granted permission to swindle old Christians and to set them to murdering one another. He was also free to become a priest for the purpose of listening to the confessions of old Christians and to pry into their secrets. He and his posterity were permitted to become physicians and surgeons so as to kill old Christians, take away their wives, defile their blood, and occupy their posts. So we see that this is the way this Spanish... Christians saw the Converso Jews. Interestingly, the Pope that stood up for the Jews at this time, Nicholas V, had a medical doctor for a father. Here it is evident that everything for which Christian nationalists complain about the Jews today was already vocalized in the satire of 15th century Spain. There is nothing new under the sun. The satire, Jones says. The satire parodies the greed of the conversos, granting the old Christian the right to carry tax-farming registers in place of prayer books when attending church services, as many of the Moranos were in the habit of doing. Christian knights were to be called by Jewish names in private, and Christian names in public so as to deceive the people. Now remember, this is a satire. The things that are attributed to the Christian in the satire are mocking the things which the Jews do in real life. Baer claims this satire marks the entry of racism into European life because in it we find for the first time the favorite racial adage that the pure blood of Spanish Christians was defiled when mixed with that of persons of the Jewish race. And of course the ancient Greeks had similar sympathies of all other races 2,000 years sooner. So it doesn't mark the entry of racism into European life. It only brings it back after too long Of a hiatus. Racism was deeply subversive, Jones quoting Baer. Racism was deeply subversive of the Catholic faith thereafter throughout European history until the Nazi genocide. Because it casts doubt on the efficacy of the sacraments, and consequently on the power of Christ and his church, and of course no Jewish historian can write a book without perpetuating the lie of the so called Nazi genocide. They probably have references to it in Jewish cookbooks. In truth, the only genocide which was committed was that against Germans by the Jews, which is ongoing to this very day. We see the Jew talk about hatred for Jews by race casting doubt on the efficacy of the Catholic sacraments. But the real things that cast doubt on the efficacy of the Catholic sacraments was the complete inability of Jews to act like Christians after they received those sacraments. That's how we learn that the sacraments are nothing but bullshit in the first place, because you can't convert a wolf into a sheep. Jones continues to cite there, The Spaniards, who had the misfortune to live under weak kings like Henry the Impotent, had learned from experience that a man's characteristics and beliefs were not changed by baptism, despite its ineffaceable character. All conversos were now suspect and Jews could use these suspicions to cast doubts on the successful efforts of Vincent Ferrer, Pablo Santa Maria, and Geronimo de Santa Fide. This is the... I'm not going to get into the identities of these Catholic icons. This is the assessment of a Jew concerning Christianity, and of course it is false. How ironic is it that Jews become Catholics and immediately begin determining Catholic doctrine? However, Catholic doctrine was never actually founded upon Scripture. As we asserted recently in another context, the laws of man are easily undermined, as are. The precepts of religion created by men. God's law is racist. God's law is natural. And its veracity cannot be undermined. But Roman Catholicism was founded on the precepts of men and not of God. The precepts of men don't work. Continuing with Jones. King John II of Castile. Responded to the crisis in Toledo by siding with the Pope and punishing Sarmiento and the old Christians, imagine that, whose anti-conversal decrees were revoked. Sarmiento fled for his life. Two years later, Nicholas V bowed to political necessity when John II asked him for the authority to establish the Inquisition to try conversos suspected of practicing Judaism in secret. The nobles of the realm, however, continued to exert pressure from the opposite direction. They wanted repressive laws revoked so that they could attract Jews into their service. When they were not revoked, the nobles ignored them and favored Jews for financial reasons. To fulfill the pecuniary expectations of the princes, the Jews reverted to grinding the Christian majority, a practice that further inflamed already white-hot resentment. The nobles and districts that followed the law were, in effect, punished financially for doing so which led the Cortes of 1462 to ask Henry to rescind the offending laws and restore liberty of trade between Christian and Jew. The sons of John II were his successor, Henry IV. Henry, the impotent, a very weak king and Alfonso, Prince of Asturias, who later became a leading figure of the rebellions of the old Christians against his brother Henry IV. Perhaps Henry IV was called Henry the Impotent because he couldn't do a damn thing about the Jews. Returning to Jones... Henry the impotence and ability to control the situation resulted in 20 years of increasing anarchy, leading eventually to civil war. Both Jew and Christian, old and new, were to learn that tolerance was another word for chaos, as it is in America and Europe today. The Judaizers maintained the upper hand in government because the ruler was too weak to rein them in. But the inactivity of the princes only led to the increased activity of the prelates, who who complained loudly because the prince handed his realm over to the exploiters. Six years into Henry's reign, Alfonso de Espina, a Franciscan monk, published one of the most virulent attacks on the Jews to date. Felicium Fide, or Fortress of Faith. Espina was the confessor to Henry IV, Henry the Impotent, and a Jewish convert himself. So once again, the old pattern reasserted itself. His book and sermons followed in the footsteps of Martini's Pugio Fide, which means fight for the faith. But his ire focused on the conversos. Now this Martini was a 13th century Dominican monk appointed as a missionary to the Jews and the Moors of Spain and of Tunis in Africa. His work, Pugio Fide, was a polemical refutation of Judaism. Some scholars believe that he too was a converso Jew. And he evidently had an extensive knowledge of even obscure Hebrew literature and read in Hebrew. Martin Luther referred to him as well. And we discussed him when we presented on the Jews and their Lies, where he was called Raymond by the name that Luther had known him. So here we have two more Converso Jews writing books like Fortress of Faith, Fight for the Faith, Missionaries to Aliens, the pattern is the same throughout history. It never ends. Jones continues speaking about Alfonso de Espina. The situation was as confusing as it was dangerous. In his diatribe Fortress of Faith Espina suggested that if an inquisition were established in Castile, large numbers of them would be found to be only pretending Christians, engaging in Judaizing, and in undermining the faith they professed. Something had to be done to end the confusion, under whose cover the judges of the people were being seduced by the bribes they received from cruel Jews who blaspheme God. Everyone pursued his gain at the expense of everyone else, but no man takes up the cudgels for abject Spain. The complaints of the old Christians against the religious misconduct of the conversos who were never punished were not exaggerated according to Espina. They were well grounded. Self-hating Jews everywhere, right? When the crown did nothing. The embittered populace rose up and took vengeance upon the conversos on their own initiative. Opesa, who proposed a more moderate course than Espina, concurred and suggested that the king put an end to this state of anarchy by means of suitable regulations. The radical Espina and the moderate Oropesa, who defended the conversos, thought some judicial body was necessary to pursue the rumors of Judaizing, and either lay them to rest as fictions or establish them as fact and prosecute the guilty. Even Oropesa reproved the government for handing its reigns to the Jews. His strategy was to divide the conversos from the Jews and lead the conversos to a stronger, deeper faith through Christian charity. Unfortunately, the opposite happened, but both voices were instrumental in forming the consensus that established the Inquisition in Spain. So Jews formed a consensus. Two converso-Jews formed the consensus that established the Inquisition in Spain. It sounds like when CNN and Fox News both agree on something and everybody goes along with it. These Brother Nathaniels of the 15th century are merely Jewish actors and Judas goats, leading Christians to believe that some of the wolves are good wolves. This sort of Jew often makes an exhibition as the most rabid anti-Jew, only to make a more marked example of themselves as the so-called good Jew. Here, in essence, we have 2 conversal converso-Jews arguing over the conditions by which wolves may be integrated into the sheep. So they also assume the roles of good cop, bad cop. Jones continues, and here the nature of the converso Jew is revealed even more strikingly. And he says, In 1453, after Constantinople fell to the Turks, the Christians feared a resurgence of Muslim influence in Spain, thwarting the Reconquista, which they were still fighting. The Jews were seized again with Messianic fervor, much of it described in Espina's Forlitum Fide, Fortress of Faith. The arrival of the Messiah was imminent once again, even if none could see the Messiah except circumcised Jews. If any non-Jews looked at him, he would blind them forthwith with his radiance. Now. Jones is quoting this supposedly sincere convert to Christianity, this Espina character. So this supposedly sincere convert to Christianity, because Jones is telling us that these converts are sincere converts, this supposedly sincere convert to Christianity is proclaiming that Only Jews could see the Messiah. Imagine that. None of them are sincere. In 1464, large numbers of conversos sailed for Constantinople. These are the sincere conversos sailing for Constantinople. They're not sincere at all, and it gets worse than that large numbers of conversos sailed for Constantinople where they intended to revert to the religion of their fathers and give aid to the Turk Antichrist who planned to march on Christian Europe and subdue it as the Moors had subdued Spain in the 8th century. These are the conversos. The sincere ones? If Christians did not realize the racial element within the Jews by this time that they are inherently evil. What could possibly persuade them today? Jones continues, during the 1460s many Jews who fled persecution in Castile settled in Aragon where lax conditions led to a fairly open practice of Judaism by the conversos. I guess they weren't sincere conversos. One refugee was Juan de Ciudad, Ciudad means city, who presented himself at the home of Rabbi Abraham Biwak for circumcision After a rite which removed, according to rabbinic theory, the stain of baptism, Juan de Ciudad set off for the Holy Land, presumably to practice his religion and give whatever aid he could to the Turkish Antichrist. Baer summarizes the conditions then extant in Aragon. Only religious laxity, toleration, and the state of war then prevailing in the kingdom of Aragon can explain the fact that such actions could take place almost publicly, and that circumcised men could go their way unhindered which begs the question, how could a people who were really being persecuted have such license? The Jewish histories are full of contradictions. In 1465 Oropesa led a delegation of Christian nobles who petitioned the king to enforce the laws against Jews and Muslims. High on the list was a request to enforce anti-usury laws, an indication The issue of usury was still intractable, hard to control. Henry, however, was in no position to enforce anything. His kingdom was in anarchy, which soon descended into civil war, even though he was no longer king. Later, in 1465, his brother Alfonso deposed Henry IV. Alfonso descended the throne of Castile in 1467. When Alfonso entered Toledo in May of that year, open warfare broke out between old Christians and the Conversos. On July 2nd a battle raged in Toledo for three days, during which four streets inhabited exclusively by conversos went up in flames. Many of the conversos who fought in these battles, says Baer, were undoubtedly involuntary converts who practiced the Jewish rites and believed in the Torah. A fact confirmed by the records of the Inquisition in the middle and late 1480s. I don't see a problem with belief in the law of God, but that was the Catholic attitude of the time. In 1469, Donna Isabel, of course Catholics don't believe in the Torah today either. In 1469, Donna Isabel of Castile married Don Fernando Son of John II of Aragon, Ferdinand and Isabella tried to resolve the civil war that raged throughout Spain. The Jews were initially well disposed to the marriage. Pedro de la Cavalleria had brought the pearl collar that served as the equivalent of an engagement ring to Castile. The Jews felt that a strong regime that maintained law and order would benefit them. But, at least initially, Ferdinand and Isabella proved incapable of ending the Civil War. In March 1473, violence and racial hatred broke out again with renewed fury. During the conflicts of 1473, the Inquisition tried conversos in Cordova and Ciudad Real. On December 10, 1474, Henry IV died, bequeathing his kingdom and its problems to the young married couple. Henry IV's brother, who deposed him, had died in 1468. So it could be, it's evident here that Henry IV received his throne back until he died in 1474. On December 10, 1474, Henry Ford died, bequeathing his kingdom and its problems to the young married couple, who began to accept a nationwide introduction of the Inquisition as the only way to restore law and order to the realm. The only thing that united Spain was the demand for resolution of the crisis. Anton de Montora, a converso from Cordoba, wrote a poem upon their ascension, which describes the plight of his co-religionists. Innocent people whose faith, he claims, was as orthodox as the sovereigns. The mendicant friars, though, continued to preach sermon after sermon against Judaism and Judaizers, urging the faithful to take banners into into their own Hands, if we only had chap, pastors like that today. So the only way to restore Spain to order was to eliminate all of the Jews and all of the false converts, which is all of the converts. Of course, true Christians should understand that all Jewish converts are false. That so many conversos so readily fled to Turkey with the hope of joining the Turks in the destruction of Christendom should alone have revealed to these Spaniards the truth behind the much earlier Muslim invasions of Spain. The Muslims were being pushed out and now the Jews set their hopes on the Turks. Today, the pattern continues. How dumb could Christians be? Here it is also proven that there was no racial hatred of Jews in Europe before the Jewish treachery against Europe. The Jews are always the aggressors and always portray themselves as the victims. Returning to Jones. It was also the matter of the Moors who still occupied southern Spain, and who were suspected of being in league with the Jews. Well, of course they were. And there were also the recalcitrant nobles, who were a law under themselves, pillaging and plundering at will. Isabella needed to reimpose law on her kingdom, but she also realized that military conquest was necessary before that could happen. After the victory of Toro, over the party of Beltranaha, Henry's Henry IV's putative daughter, whom the Portuguese backed as claimant to the throne in 1476. The Cortes of Madrigal restored royal prerogatives. Jews were even more beyond the law than the renegade nobles. They were tried in their own courts. Note the uh, The Talmud says that Jews are never guilty of anything done to Gentiles. They could be prosecuted in royal courts for criminal offenses, but they could only be punished in accord with their own law. They could not be summoned to court on a Sabbath. Even polygamy was tolerated among the Jews, and so they became an ongoing incitement for content of the law and of the Christian faith. The conversos quickly exploited the situation. The Cure de los Palacios claimed the practice of Judaism was widespread among the conversos. Leia, a reference to American Henry Charles Leia, who was a Quaker and a historian of the later Middle Ages. Leah claims that when the royal couple took the throne, the Judaizers were so powerful that the clerks were on the point of preaching the Law of Moses. Now, this is a pun on Leah's part, Which should probably not be taken seriously, but which was made to describe how powerful the Jews had become. They would probably preach the law of Maimonides before they would preach the law of Moses, I'm sure. In addition, The Judaizing conversos avoided baptizing their children, and when they could not prevent it, they washed off the baptism on returning from the church. They ate meat on fast days and unleavened bread at Passover. They also continued to benefit from usury, claiming they were spoiling the Egyptians, but they really considered the actual Christians to be no different than biblical Egyptians and no less dispensable. So it may have sounded good, but they were looking Christians in the eye with that claim, knowing they were spoiling them. As a result, they became wealthy and powerful enough to block the enforcement of laws that would have restored order Anarchy thwarted the attempt to impose order and this is the same pattern we see today with the wealthy Jews. George Soros, Goldman Sachs, all of these wealthy international Jews block the enforcement of our immigration laws today. They let the niggers run riot in the streets of our cities. The If it was white people, the National Guard would be called out. But because it's niggers, They just let them do what they want and hope that they run out of energy. It's incredible. Jews are doing the same thing today they did in 15th century Spain. This is the turning point for the Jews in 15th century Spain. From here, Isabella has her own sort of awakening. But it is also foreboding misfortune for the rest of the world. Here we will conclude our presentation for this evening, and plan on presenting the rest of this chapter as early as next Saturday. Praise Yahweh! Thank you for listening, and good night.